Hi everyone, I'm Karen Gammy and you're listening to Optimizing. Hi, and I'm Professor Barry Dwilaski. So Barry, in the first three episodes of the podcast, you gave us an overview of your journey into becoming the Grand Geek, right? So if we think about it, we're now sitting in the 1990s, you're back in South Africa, apartheid has ended, and you're now in the stream job as a senior lecturer at WITS. What lessons did you learn from sort of all the amazing and incredible things that you did? Um, and really, how do you think this could help me and my peers on our future tech journey? Looking back at those years now, I can say that I worked with and helped pioneer some of the key building blocks of what we now call digital transformation or the so-called Fourth Industrial Revolution or 4IR. These key things were firstly object-oriented design or OOD, secondly the concept of, of a digital twin, and then uh, thirdly, robots and how to combine them with AI to do useful tasks. Um, so these topics are like pretty large and uh, and they warrant podcasts in and of themselves, but we'll come back to them again in future episodes. But I think for now, can you maybe just walk us through sort of what they are and how they related to the work you did? And we can start with object-oriented design. When did you learn about that? So uh, when I worked at the University of Manchester, UMIST, in the early 1980s, I realized that we needed special dialects of programming languages. Uh, programming languages are how the application developer or the programmer explains to the computer what needs to be done. Languages like Fortran and Pascal were fine for having a broad conversation with the computer. But as soon as we started communicating about something more complicated, we needed um, some new words in our vocabulary. For example, if you're writing a program about uh, digital control systems, which we were doing at UMIST at that time, we needed a language that had words for concepts like vectors and matrices. Um, I therefore invented a new programming language, which was actually a special dialect of Pascal, and I called this Plasma. I'm now thinking about it after all these years, I realized that what I was doing then was OOD, object-oriented design. Um, to make it work at that time, which was in the early 1980s, I needed to write a hugely complex preprocessor. What you would do, Kieran, in your world today is to use your favorite uh, language like Java or C++ or Python or something nice like that. And you would simply create classes called Vector and Matrix, which is a very simple task. So what it really taught us to do is how to deal with complexity. Uh, software applications are complex, and I'll keep coming back to this. It's been said that some of the most complex artifacts ever built by human beings are very large software systems. And this concept, OO, is a way to develop abstract concepts that allow us to focus on the big picture rather than getting caught up in minute details. And then later working at GEC Marconi Research Labs, 
on flexible robotic assembly, I did a lot more with OO. Uh, then I was using a real OO language called Smalltalk, and I invented really high-level abstractions called Smart Products, which helped tremendously in the work we did then. It's really only because of OO that today's developers are able to write the software that lies at the heart of this fourth industrial revolution. It's important, however, that um, developers really understand all the OO concepts, things like encapsulation, inheritance, polymorphism, and interfaces. If there are developers listening to this podcast, that do not have any idea what I'm talking about, then they should go, they should go and find out because that's really the bread and butter of being a software developer. So the other big lesson that you were talking about was the idea of digital twins. What, what is this or what are these? So uh, can you think of something potentially complex in the, in the analog world that we all live in? Mm, what about a car? That's a great example, because I'm sure everyone's seen one of those. So, uh, the car's a physical thing, right? Um, how would you model it in a computer? Oof. I guess it depends on what aspect of the car you want to model. And that's the key question. We could model how the car moves, uh, how it accelerates, how it stops, etc. We would use Newton's laws of motion to do that. Uh, we could model how the engine burns fuel. We could model how the car's aircon works or how the airbags behave in a crash. We could build either simple or complex models of these aspects of the car. In each case, the model is represented by a program in a computer and it mimics something in the real world, in the physical world. We call these computer models digital twins. Uh, having these twins gives us a really cheap and a very easy way to simulate how the car behaves in certain circumstances. We could give our digital car new types of tires or a new engine, and we could then analyze how this would affect the performance of the car without moving from our seat in front of the computer. It's very cheap and very quick. Working at Imperial College, I learned a lot about this concept of digital twins, working on large and complex econometric models, working on this mass electrification program with my program CART. I built another type of model. This time it simulated the behavior of, of a power grid. The biggest lesson I learned was that all models are approximations. And that's a very important point. Models are useful, but if you're developing and using a model, you should always be aware of its limitations. You should always understand what your digital twin can't do. I'm sure in your work um, doing all this fancy machine learning and AI at the bank, you work with models. And I just wonder how much you focus on the limitations of your models. Yeah, that's definitely a thing. I often maintain that like AI is magical, but it's not magic and it can't just quickly solve all the world's problems. Um, and I think one of the limitations outside of like the obvious infrastructure that come with like big banks and big companies, but 
the idea of interpretability is a really big challenge and like you can't ever go into this black boxy model and that's a limitation in and of itself um and then i think also just not fully understanding the interconnect interconnectedness of the model with the data because you don't fully understand the data um i feel like i could talk all day about this but <laughs> yeah it's, it's a it's a really key issue so people who use models and sometimes they use them with a lot of blind faith and they don't think about limitations so in modern applications those we associate with the fourth industrial revolution um our digital twin is often connected to its analog sibling via real time sensors and real time actuators this is the whole world of the internet of things iot and it gives an illusion of high level accuracy i think you said that but it becomes even more important to understand the uh, limitations we'll uh, revisit this in a future issue so your third big lesson and this one is particularly close to to my heart um but it was about ai and robotics uh when i was working at um gc marconi research lab I um got to understand just how amazing humans are at doing certain tasks even fairly mundane tasks. Uh we were working then on flexible assembly and um at that time in 1985 industrial robots were being used in and it was being used in what we called hard automation. So if you think of a production line producing cars As the car moves along the line, parts are added step by step. In Henry Ford's production line, human workers added each part. By the 1980s, assembly robots were taking the place of humans and were were doing certain operations. It's called hard automation because these types of production lines were very carefully set up. to produce one type of car in large quantities. What we were trying to do at MGC um, Marconi was very different. We were saying, he has a huge box of parts and he has some detailed instructions, build it. And it's a thing that a human can do. The complexity of the product that um she is trying to build would be determined really by her, her level of skills. but humans are really good at this even if the detailed instructions are not that clear that figure it out uh humans uh, generally find such a task quite easy in fact in the 1980s even the most sophisticated robots which we had and the state of the art artificial intelligence which we had found this to be an incredibly difficult task and even today with all the amazing inventions and developments in computer vision ai machine learning this task would be a very difficult task to do so the lesson i learned was one that's still valid today and it's that replacing humans with robots even if that's what we want to do is never going to be an easy thing I personally believe that we should always focus on what robots do well and what people do well and work on ways to help them work together. 
hundred percent fully agree with that. Um, yeah, thanks for that summary. That was that was good. I think I'm going to use that in a presentation. <laughs> um, so in this episode in particular, we said that we were going to focus on software engineering, which is a monster in and of itself. But what exactly is software engineering? No, that's my favorite question of all. Um, when I became a full professor at WITS in 2000, uh, one of the requirements was to present a public lecture. And I spoke about my discipline, software engineering. I called my lecture, How to Slay a Werewolf. So let me tell you how to slay a werewolf. But first, let me answer your question. What is software engineering? In the late 1960s, computers had been around for 15 or 20 years, and a huge problem was emerging. So bear in mind, we, we're still speaking about these huge mainframes that I mentioned in um, episode one. Um, but many projects that were put in place to uh, develop relatively large software applications were running late, running over budget, and in many cases they didn't work properly. In other words, they had very poor quality. So people started to call this the software crisis. And in 1968 to 1969, NATO sponsored two conferences in Grammisch in Germany to discuss ways of solving the software crisis. And these conferences gave birth to the discipline of software engineering. Um, a um, software engineer was defined by the IEEE, which is an international standards organization, as someone who applies a systematic disciplined approach to the development of software. That was the definition. One of the biggest challenges for a software engineer is to deal with complexity. I spoke about this a bit earlier. Serious software is big, and just how big? Take, for example, the Linux kernel in the year 2000. It was made up of 4.1 million lines of code. To read that aloud nonstop, it would uh, um, take you 590 days just to read out the code in the Linux kernel. At the same time, Microsoft Windows, which obviously was much better than Linux because it was 10 times bigger. It was 40 million lines of code. So I guess the message here is that to do anything useful with software requires at least tens of thousands of lines of code to be written. Um, and I have to say that in modern software, we've learned to reuse existing codes from libraries and frameworks, so we aren't writing all that code. But big software is extremely complex. It has large numbers of states, which means it can't be tested exhaustively. It is therefore really essential that we, we do, as the uh, definition of software engineering suggests, and that is to apply a systematic, disciplined approach to developing software. So note that the um, definition doesn't say what the disciplined approach is, but it just says we've got to be disciplined about it. Okay, but where do the werewolves come in? Exactly. 
Where do the werewolves come in? Firstly, what is a werewolf? Can you define one for me? Um, so they're legendary creatures. Uh, I guess most of the time they live kind of amongst us, maybe in the form of a man or a woman, I guess. Um, but they're usually men. And then when there's this full moon, they transform and they turn into these like scary, vicious creatures. That's like a half man, half wolf. That's correct. So in medieval times, people literally lived in terror at the thought of there being werewolves amongst them. The scary thought was that you didn't know who they were. So your next door neighbor could suddenly turn into a werewolf and you wouldn't know until the full moon came out. And then in Hollywood movies in the 1940s, scriptwriters invented a way to slay, which was um, Hollywood speak for kill, a werewolf. Uh, and the way you did it, you'd have to shoot him through the heart with a silver bullet. So that is how you slay a werewolf. But what is this to do with software engineering? I can hear you thinking. The reason is when a software engineer looks at a big development project, what do they, what sort of analogous kind of projects is it looking like? Um, is it uh, the same as building a large skyscraper? Or could it be like landscaping and maintaining a big, beautiful garden? Um, a person by the name of Fred Brooks, who's one of the fathers of software engineering, made a very astonishing statement in a paper he wrote in 1987. He said that software projects were like a werewolf. He says that often a software project seems to be going along really well, no issues, no problems, just, just another happy project ticking along, when suddenly it transforms. It becomes a huge scary monster full of errors, running late and costing way more than anyone expected. When this happens, the software engineer starts rushing around looking for a silver bullet. If the full moon transforms a friendly man next door into a frightening werewolf, what transforms a happy project into a scary monster? And the answer we found is that it's about insufficient information, insufficient time, inadequate testing, and inadequate skills. Okay, so if software projects are similar to werewolves, scary, vicious, intimidating, how do software engineers go about dealing with them? And that is really the key question. Um, across many years, um, software engineers have come up with four different answers to your question. Uh, first, let me list them and then I'll explain them in a bit more detail. Uh, the first, obviously, is to find a silver bullet. The second is to stop the full moon rising. The third is to say, there are no werewolves, silly. And the fourth is to welcome the werewolf into your life. So uh, let's look at these four approaches to um, software engineering one by one. The first I said was to find a silver bullet. So since 1968 and the NATO conferences in Germany, software engineers have been searching for a silver bullet. In the 1970s, they thought it was something called structured programming and design. In the 1980s, it was object orientation. 
in the 1990s, it was uh, something called computer-aided software engineering tools or case tools. In the 2000s, it was uh, design patterns and service-oriented architecture. And today, I guess, it's DevOps and those sorts of approaches. However, Fred Brooks and others have argued that there will never be a silver bullet. So we should stop looking for it. So if this is true and there will never be a silver bullet, what else can a software engineer do? One possible solution is to go for the second option I listed. That is to stop the full moon rising. Um, I said earlier that uh, software projects turn into monsters because of insufficient information, insufficient time, inadequate testing and, in, and inadequate skills. Software engineering as a discipline has over many years developed methodologies to deal with these things. We use what is called a plan-driven or a waterfall approach. Um, the software development team collects lots of information about what's required. We call this requirements engineering. They then use these requirements to create an architecture and a design and a detailed plan. The software is then built according to this design and plan and it's then exhaustively tested and delivered. Before you even start the project, people with all the necessary skills are recruited into the team. I could speak at length about the pros and the cons of this plan-driven approach, but to put it briefly, it sometimes works, which means that the werewolf never appears, and it also sometimes doesn't work, the werewolf does appear. So the third approach, which is very similar to the second, I've called there is no werewolf city. In um, software project terms, what is a werewolf? It's a project running late. It's a project running over budget. It's a project with quality issues. But how real are these things? If a project is late, what does that really mean? It means that it took longer than we thought it would. So if we had estimated that the project would take two months and it lands up taking five months, could it be that the problem was that we estimated two months incorrectly? We should have estimated five months. If we had estimated five months, it would have run smack on time. So the there is no werewolf approach says that we must approve our ways of planning, estimating and testing. The fourth approach and the one that is by far the most popular today is what I've called welcome the werewolf into our lives. It's called agile development and it's based on the idea that the plan driven or waterfall approach is the actual problem. How can we aim to stop the full moon rising? That's silly. We know that werewolves are out there. We know that some projects will turn nasty. We need to find ways to deal with this simple truth. The simple truth is a werewolf is going to appear. So what Agile says is find ways to work with changing requirements and timelines. Welcome uncertainty and deal with it in an Agile way. In the moves away from waterfall to Agile, 
power shifts from the project manager who owns and drives the plan to the developers who ride the waves of uncertainty and deliver software piece by piece. We call it an iterative and an incremental approach to development. We could um, devote a whole episode to this idea of Agile. In 2005, I brought Kent Beck, one of the founders of the, of the uh, movement around Agile, to South Africa. His visit played a very major role in introducing Agile to the local software community. Um, Kent has, in fact, visited us several times since then and has become a good friend of mine and of the South African and African software development community. I'll hopefully have Kent join me for a podcast talking about Agile development. Okay, so here we are. We're back in the 1990s, early 2000s. You're lecturing at VITS, doing some really incredible work on mass electrification and also becoming an expert in software engineering. How does this involvement in software engineering fit in with everything else? Um, yes, in my formal academic work at VITS, I positioned myself as part of the software engineering discipline. Professor Alistair Walker had been running something called SEAL, Software Engineering Application Lab, in the WITS Department of Electrical Engineering for many years. I joined SEAL, and when Alistair left WITS in the late 1990s, I took over as the head of the software engineering group. I started teaching a course in software engineering to fourth-year engineering students and to final-year computer scientists. I also developed a number of postgrad courses. Additionally, I supervised a number of PhD and MSc students doing software engineering projects. I also did my own research and published several papers on topics within software engineering. However, my major interest became how I could help to transform and grow South Africa's ICT industry. I guess this will be the topic for our next episode of the podcast. I'm super excited to hear all about that. And I think one thing that I really appreciated about this episode, and you spoke to it briefly, was this kind of like the wonder of humans and that like humans create and are creative. And it's so nice to have been able to learn about your involvement in this process of creatively creating things. It also makes me feel incredibly privileged that I don't have to work too hard to make vectors or matrices. <laughs> I'm super grateful for that. Um, yeah, this is really, really cool. I enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by me, Barry Dwalaski, and featured Karen Gammy. It was edited by Evan Wigdorovitz. Music and sound was by Callum Cool, and Joshua Clark mixed the episode.